Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody back to Alabama Care today. Uh, we have Mr. Jack Carney, Carney Dias uh, Attorneys in Birmingham, Alabama. And we're going to be talking about probate and what exactly probate is. It's a word that I've heard before um, when helping some family members out. And I feel like I don't have a good grasp of that. So today, uh, Mr. Carney is going to give us an overview and we'll delve into some specifics. Uh, Mr. Carney, if you would introduce yourself. Yeah, great. Thank you, Alex. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, again, my name is Jack Carney. I'm a partner with Carney Dye Law Firm. And we're a Birmingham, Alabama law firm that focuses on estate planning, probate, special needs planning, and trust administration law. Uh, so this is, um, this is a, a topic that's near and dear to us when we, we talk about probate. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar, uh, maybe viewing for the first time, Mr. Carney and Carney Dye Associates have helped me uh, and my family navigate some of the things, um, you know, that we're doing for family members. So I highly recommend if you have any questions, go ahead and give them a call or you can just put it in the chat. Um, so today, what exactly is probate? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I think it's, it's an often misunderstood term until you go to, through it. And what I would say, what the probate process is in most, in all states, in Alabama, I'll talk about Alabama probate, but it's very similar in almost all states, um, is the process of getting assets from the name of a decedent to beneficiaries or heirs. So probate is simply that legal process of how do you get assets from column A to column B. And, and why that needs a process, if you think about it, when you have, we'll talk about different types of ownership, but if I have a piece of property that I own in my name, it's, name, it's titled in the name of Jack Carney alone, if I die, no one has legal authority to do anything with that property. They can't sell it, they can't transfer it because the only person whose name is on that property is now deceased. So the probate process is getting that authority to somebody in order to handle that property of a deceased person. That's a process. Probate is a process is what I usually tell clients. So, cause normally when I think if you're purchasing an asset like a house, um, you don't have to go through probate cause both people are there uh, alive and doing the deal and signing over all the paperwork. So probate is really when somebody is no longer to do that because they're deceased, uh, probate steps in for them. It does. And, you know, that brings up a good question and kind of a good part of this discussion today. Because it's something good to be aware of is when you talk about probate, you don't, maybe this is a good way to start when somebody comes to us because a loved one passed away and they might say, I have a will and a will is meant to be probated. So if you have a will, you probate. And they ask me to file the will for them and start the probate process. My first question is usually, well, let's wait let's see if we have to probate because mm -hmm. we don't probate just to probate. We don't file a will just because we have one. A will is a tool to get assets from column A to column B. And it might very well be, you know, Alex, that you alluded to that person in, that died, don't, they don't have any assets in their name because they passed automatically to other people by joint account status, maybe by beneficiary designation. So that's probably a good first you know, myth to debunk is that you always have to probate when somebody dies. You always have to file a will when someone dies. You don't. Uh, first step is to always do an analysis. What is, is there any reason to file this will? 
And, and, and so that, that's kind of how we start. And what uh, another, I like to show it by example. You know, I look at my parents. Um, they may be watching, you know, or, or watch the recording. So sorry for the example. But my, my parents have been married a long time. Everything they own is joint. Um, if they have an asset like an IRA, they've named each other's beneficiary. They have a bank account. It's joint. Both names are on it. If something happened to one of my parents, there would be no need to probate a will or file anything because everything automatically passes to the survivor instantly and as a matter of law. And, and we, you know, and that, that's the way I would recommend they keep it by design is that we don't want to have to file a will um, at someone's death. If we can avoid it, it's a good thing. Sometimes you have to do it and that's okay. But in most cases, when a, when there's a couple, one person dies, um, there is no need to file probate for that estate. Not always, but most of the time. So um, most probates will be when it's not a married couple and someone's passing away. Most probate, probates will be if those assets are being transferred to a different family member that isn't on the account or maybe not listed on the deed uh, or maybe somebody outside the family. Even though the individual is expressed in their will that they want them to have the asset, if they're not the beneficiary of it, it has to go through probate. Co correct. If well, if they're if they're not the beneficiary, it has to go through probate. And, and you bring up a good point or alluded to it. I think it's another maybe number two to, a takeaway uh, from today is the importance of what I call non-probate assets and beneficiary designations versus probate assets. And so the example would be this: I could do a will that says. You know, I'm leaving these assets to my children and under no circumstance do I ever want anything to go to Alex Vimes, ever, never, ever, and I can emphasize it. However, Alex, if I have you named as a beneficiary of a life insurance policy, you get that money, even though my will says absolutely not. And so non-probate property is not governed by the will, it's governed by the contract with each institution. So when you go out and buy a life insurance policy, they're always gonna ask you, who's your beneficiary? And you might fill somebody's name in. And then they might ask you, who's a secondary beneficiary? And you fill somebody's name in. Well, no matter what happens at your death, it's going to that person because that's the agreement you entered into. Mm -hmm. And your will might even say something more direct. I don't want that life insurance policy to go to that person, doesn't matter. Beneficiary always overrides. Always overrides. And so one of the common mistakes we see, and we always cautioning our clients against is, you may do a will, and that's wonderful, and that's important, and everybody needs one. But you have to coordinate your will with your beneficiary designations. And I find that most people don't know what their beneficiaries are. And I even now encourage people, because I've seen it time and time again, keep a copy of all your beneficiary designations with your will because the beneficiary designations are just as important as that will. Yeah. And we often forget it. You know, I had a client, they've, they've tried to change the law a little bit. It's made it more convoluted, but he actually, he passed away years ago. Um, he named his first ex-wife as his beneficiary of an IRA. Now he named her when they were married. So this is his only asset. So she was named, they got divorced, he got remarried, he got divorced again, and then he died. First ex-wife was named as beneficiary. And under the law, she was entitled to take it. Yeah. Um, and because and, and he, he didn't update it. 
Um, and the law has to presume that if you leave someone as a beneficiary, that's what you wanted. That's uh, kind of that process and keeping up with all the beneficiaries. And you have life's, um, life insurance, IRAs. Uh, it's kind of like when you get a new credit card. Yeah, but this may be a bad example, but you have to update all that information uh, if you do change what you want as your beneficiary. You, you do. And again, a good, you know, most folks, if you have an insurance agent, they're usually really good about that. We encourage people to talk to them. If you have a financial advisor or a certified financial planner, those are always good people to help you keep all that together and make sure it's coordinated. And that's what we, we're always urging people coordinate it because it makes such a difference on the probate side, because again, probate or call it a state administration is about where your assets go at death. And we need to know where everything's going. And I would tell people if you're confused or if, you know, because sometimes when you look at these documents, these beneficiary designations can be confusing even to a lawyer. I have to sit down and read it twice, three times. Uh, it can be confusing. So I, an easy way is to go to your bank or go to the insurance agent, so especially this applies to the bank and joint accounts and say, if I die, what happens to this account? What, what's the next step? What happens? And if no one's on that account, they'll tell you that account will be frozen until you get an executor under a will or an estate. Um, or they might say, well, you know, Mr. Carney, your daughter's on that account with you. She will get that money at your death. So it, it's, it's good to know where it goes so that we avoid unintended consequences during the probate time, during the administration at death. I like that question because anybody can ask that. Like if I were to pass away tomorrow, um, what would happen to my assets here at the bank account or what would happen right. to my house or what would happen to my car? Sure, um, sure, absolutely. You can ask that of anybody and even at the you know retirement plan, call, call up you know Vanguard or Fidelity and say, I have an IRA with you. What happens if I die? And they might, they'll be able to tell you, oh, sir, your primary beneficiary is blank. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I see that a lot with clients if we're doing planning for a couple. They might have been married five, six, seven years. When we look at beneficiary designations, it's, it's very frequent that their spouse is not named. Really? Because they might have gotten that IRA when they weren't married and maybe they named their sibling or their parents. And we kind of joke about it. I said, well, I assume you want to name your spouse as beneficiary of your IRA now. I assume you want to update that. So the process of looking at that and doing the state planning, you know, kind of helps us see those things about where is it going to go one day. Again, I've seen unintended consequences. We can usually fix them. But, you know, I've seen people that have left assets to a sibling when they had a child. But after they had their child, they did not update the IRA beneficiary form. It still named their sibling. Well, sibling, in this case, may did the right thing, set the money aside for the child, but that was cumbersome and they paid a little extra taxes that they wouldn't have had to do had it have been done properly. Yeah. But, but the other point is they, do, they didn't have to do the right thing. You know, legally, as a matter of law, it belonged to them. And yeah, that's another point we see a lot with... Um, yeah, this is all related to probate at death. A lot of times uh, family members, individuals will add a child to their account for convenience. They say, I want, you know, again, they sometimes call that a poor man's power of attorney. You know, because <laughs> a power of attorney allows somebody to do your business for you. Well, sometimes folks will add a child on an account to help them write checks. And that's, that's good. And that's not necessarily wrong. I just tell people to be aware of it because what will happen is, and I've experienced this, 
when mom or dad passes, that child on the account gets that money. As a matter of law, it belongs to them. I encourage mom or dad, if you're going to do that, do it with an account that doesn't have a lot of money. Hmm. And maybe make a note in your will about your intention that's not meant to be a joint account. Um, because it's hard on families. I mean, I've seen a situation where somebody got, it was tens of thousands of dollars when mom died. And this was the local caregiver, you know, taking care of mom. And I think we all thought it was for convenience. But then after mom died, she actually took the money, even though it caused a family rift. Because her and her her side was, well, I guess mom wanted me to have it. Maybe that was her thank you. And what I would encourage folks like mom, if I would have done the planning, would be if that's what you want, please say that. Don't leave it up because we're not going to know once you're gone. No. And then even the daughter that took the money, I don't falter. I mean, maybe she's well-meaning. Yeah. If you're on the account and you go to the bank and they tell you it's yours. I mean. What are you going to, it's hard to say no to. It's hard to say no. Well, maybe that's what she wanted, but it's, it's that, it's that maybe that lack of understanding of again, probate versus non-probate and the will covers probate. And maybe if I, again, to reemphasize when I talk about probate property, that is property in the sole name of a decedent at death, meaning it's kind of stuck there. Mm -hmm. And how you'll know it's probate is you'll go to the bank and you'll want to access the account of maybe your deceased loved one. You'll need some money to pay for funeral expenses. And they'll tell you this even happens to spouses. Well, I'm sorry, sir. You know, you can't access your wife's account. Well, why not? Well, it only is in her name and we need you to give us letters testamentary. Or sometimes they'll say this document called letters. And that's sort of your signal when you're not able to access something that it's time to look at probate. Because letters testamentary, talking about a probate process, when you file a will and it's accepted by the court, and it's actually pretty easy to do, uh, you get this document called letters testamentary. And that's like a driver's license for administering the estate. You know, I had a good client the other day that when we we're talking about the importance of getting letters testamentary and how that's going to help her do what she needs to do, she goes, oh, that's like my golden ticket. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, yes, you've got a golden ticket when you get letters testamentary. You can do whatever you need to do. You can get into that bank account once you have this thing called letters in your hand. And that's basically proof of your authority as granted by the court. Maybe that's a that's a great explanation. And I am, uh, <clears throat> I am on a checking account with a family member of mine, kind of for ease of use. Yep. Uh, that I can write checks for her. Um, but she has it where that if there's, you know, there's any money in there when she passes away, that that's considered in her final wishes. Yep. Um, you know, so she has expressed that and, I, and is a gr good way to do it. Now for somebody like me, I have my own checking account. I don't have anybody else on it. Let's say I'm a, a single male and I didn't have any family and I passed away, who would start that probate? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first of all, you know, when, you, when somebody passes away, uh, another threshold question is, do we have a will? Okay, so if you don't have a will, that's called an, an intestate, which just simply means you don't have a will. You died without a will, an intestate estate administration, in a way, it's, I sometimes call that probate, even though technically probate is the action of taking a will through court. If you have a will, it's incumbent on the executor to file that will. And any member of your family or person named in the will can force an executor to file that will with the court. 
And granted, we have to know about the will. And I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example too. I mean, if we if we know that someone passes away and we know we have a copy of the will at our office, we, we will try to contact the family. If we can't contact the family, we might file that will ourselves for safekeeping with the probate court, just in case somebody comes forward. Because one thing you'll find, kind of going back to my initial thought um, or initial statement is, just because someone passes away doesn't necessarily mean we have to file a will. It's not required. We may keep that will for a time and wait and see if the need arises. And in Alabama, you have five years to file a will from the date of death. That's the statute of limitations, five years. And so that's something good to be aware of. And, and it happens even to married couples. You know, I had a somebody that came to me, and he is an older gentleman, and he had a will for his wife, and she had died a year and a half beforehand. And we had to file the will for probate because unbeknownst to him, she was the beneficiary of an aunt's estate who died before she did. And so she was getting some money in, in her name alone, and because it was in her name alone, the quote inheritance, we had to probate the will for him to be able to get it. Huh. So you keep that will around, you know, even if we decide we're not going to use the will, we'll tell clients, well, let's hold, we're going to hold on to it just in case, you know, things happen. There may be another reason to open the estate. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, you never know. Um, another reason you might open the estate, let's say you, again, like to bounce all over the place. Let's say you, you died in an accident, but you had nothing. You, were, you had no assets at all. So there's no reason to probate your will for your assets. But let's say we did discover a year later, um, you died because of a defect in that automobile, and maybe a lawsuit needs to be filed for wrongful death. Mm. And at that time, we would probate your estate. We'd file your will to get an executor to have the legal authority to file suit. Gotcha. So some, if you think about it, you know, again, it goes back to the whole probate process, the whole estate process is getting somebody with that has legal authority to speak for this deceased person. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we need a spokesperson not to get assets, but maybe to pursue a claim or pursue some kind of justice for you. Yeah, when you were saying you have five years to file it, <clears throat> I'm thinking, well, I, I like my paperwork to be nice and tidy and done. You know? <laughs> and so why not get it done right at the beginning? But you bring up good examples. And I think if there's a reason to get it done at the beginning, you still do it. You should. You should file quickly. There's always there's a lot of reasons to do that. If there's a reason to probate, I'm more bring up that example of let's hold on to it. Let's keep it in case that reason makes itself known later. Mm-hmm. Like we never know, like it's, it's, um, we can tell pretty easily on the front end and, and kind of, I want to, you know, talk about a couple other things. Um, one, there are, even if you have some assets in your name, there are probate alternatives. Such and, as? Such a, and, and there's a couple, a couple of them. I have people that have passed away and said, you know what, my, my spouse passed. The only asset they had was their car. It's in their name alone. Do I have to probate to get the car in my name? And the answer is no. There is actually a form, and Alex, I can send it to you. Uh, It's on the Alabama Department of Revenue website. It's on most county websites. It's called, it's an MVT, I think it's 5-6. I may have that backwards. Uh, It's the affidavit for transfer of a vehicle for a decedent whose estate does not require probate. So it's kind of cool they thought about this because yeah. probate might cost you a couple thousand dollars at least. 
doesn't make a lot of sense to do that to transfer title to a car that might be worth a couple thousand dollars. And so you don't have to. There's a form that the next of kin can fill out to get title to the car. There's also a statute that allows us to get money in a bank account to the next of kin, it has to go to the next of kin, um, which is normally what most people would do for bank accounts with $5,000 or less. It's actually a banking law. And so by presenting an affidavit signed by the next of kin, we can access, the family can access those funds. I like that through the banking because if there are expenses like funeral expenses <clears throat> and nobody else is on that account, it is nice to give it to the next kin so they can help pay for those expenses. It is. And that might be, you know, sometimes with a smaller account as a practical standpoint, if you know you don't have prepaid burial and you know you're going to need some money for funeral and the family can't pay it. I've seen families put a child on an account for that reason alone. But again, going back to intent, they make it clear this is for funeral. Yeah. They write that down so that no one can say otherwise. But we like the small estate. I mean, we helped somebody out that they, again, they lost their spouse. They weren't able to access the bank account because it was not in their name. It just happened to be in the wife's name. Just for no reason other than that's just how it always was. And we were able to give them a small estate affidavit and they were able to get the money they needed mm -hmm. through that process. Yeah. It's a lot simpler process. I, I it feels like, uh, and, and a lot, um, a lot less money investment for the individual. It is. And so it's kind of like we talk about those little, um, you know, I'll get another example. This was a family member years ago. I helped out. Her husband died and he had a $600 credit with United Airlines. Just credit. And they were, they were willing to send her a ticket or a check or whatever. But they told her you have to probate the estate and get letters. And she asked me about that. I said, we know the probate's going to cost you at a minimum a couple thousand dollars when all is said and done. That doesn't make economic sense for six hundred dollars. Yeah. But instead of letting it go, let's try the affidavit, and we did, and it worked. Hmm. They cut her a check individually because she signed an affidavit, swearing. That's what an affidavit is. It's a sworn statement in front of a notary. I am the next of kin. There's no debts that have been unpaid. There's no estate that's opened. Please release the money, and they did. Nice. Again, the, those affidavits are. I always say it's worth a shot to try it. Now, eventually, if you're over five, you know, maybe if you're $6,000, I still think you try it, but know that you might have to go to plan B. And plan B in Alabama is something called summary distribution. They have a small estate proceeding in Alabama where if you have about $30,000 or less of assets, and you can do this even if you have a will, by the way, $30,000, you can do what's basically a short form administration where you don't go the full, through the full song and dance and you can get access to that money for the beneficiaries. So it's called summary distribution. And then of course, plan C is probate, which is I like not- I like how you're taking us through uh, the different levels there, just with, like with guardianship. You know, you start off yep. with the least invasive or restrictive and you kind of work up depending on what that looks like for you and your family. And that's a good point. It's kind of like that in most areas of the law. It's like you always want to do, again, the least restrictive to get to the same benefit. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and if you get, because again, the more, the more restrictive, if you, if you probate and there was no need to probate, you know, and I've seen that happen to people. I've seen people probate where they didn't, no one looked at the deed and saw that it was joint. And they probated because of the deed and they didn't realize they didn't have to probate. 
Yeah. <laughs> and and that's not it's not harmful. It's not the end of the world. It's just some unnecessary time and money. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we always kind of start with the thoughtful process of well, let's analyze it, let's see what we need to do, and then let's do the next right thing to get the result. Maybe that's a good way to put it. We're always we're going after that result, and that result is usually closing down the business of this person who passed away. You know, getting the assets where they're supposed to go. That's this process, and and more times than not, you know, if if there's land. Um, if there's significant assets, you have to go through probate. I was just going to ask, you mentioned that thing about the car, the, the car form transfer. Can that be applied to other assets that are larger, such as a house or land? In a, in a limited circumstance, and that's a good question, um, the, one of our other short form things to do with land is, and it's only in a unique situation, um, if you inherit property, well, I should say this, whether there's a will or not, Alabama law says if somebody dies owning property, after two years, if no other action is taken, that property will vest in my heirs. It goes to my heirs. So let me give you an example. It works with a single person. If I'm single, say I have three kids. Let's say I die. I have a home. It's all I have. I don't do anything with it. Because let's say one of my kids moves into the home with the permission of the others, and they just stay there. After two years legally that home belongs to the three children equally Mm. and no court proceeding has to be taken Um, they can just get a new deed and we do something called airship affidavits closing attorneys are really good at these two what an airship affidavit is the law says if you get two people who are not related to your family and they sign a sworn statement that that's jack and those are his three kids that's enough to vest good title in those kids the issue is why well, I said two years, that's the, that's the creditor statute of limitations. So those children who inherit that property at, without taking some other steps, they can't sell that property and get the money immediately. They have to put it on hold until that two years expires. Gotcha. It has to be held in escrow or maybe they have to buy an insurance policy that's going to be expensive to cover creditors. Does that make sense? So that short form way is wonderful if you have a situation where you have family land and no one wants to sell it. Yeah. Or you have family land and it's been four years since mom died and you just now realized <laughs> that it's in her name alone. You always thought it was in mom and dad's name, but now you realize it's in mom's name. We can do airship affidavits and fix that after two years. If you want to take any action or maybe sell the home, you probably best the probate. Uh, and it actually might be more efficient, you know, believe it or not, or cheaper to do it that way than to maybe wait two years or take some extra steps. So to answer your question, there's there's these little nuanced ways about a car, about this, what I call airship property, you know, that maybe family property, um, you know, and, and those types of things do come up. There's this small estate affidavits. And again, I always go back to it's important to try to do that simplest thing first. And sometimes probate could be simple, the simplest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Depending on what the estate looks like. I really like how you're, how you explain it. It's kind of, if you think about it as a business, it's the liquidation of the business. And where do these assets, It is. where's the final place that these assets are going to be at the end of this liquidation? It, uh, it, it, 
it's a wind up, you know, that's a term in business. I, you know, like I said, liquidation, that's a good, that's a good analogy. I have to use it. It's a wind winding down, mm-hmm. you know, you wind down a business when you close it, you're winding down this person's affairs. Yeah, that's yeah. a pretty serious, important job. And you, you send those where they need to go. That's what, that's what probate again is all about. Uh, so if we, if we uh, go through those steps and we find out that probate is the best option, how long does probate take and what is the exact process there? It's a great question. Um, and this is kind of one of my issues I like to more educate folks on because I think for a lot of people, and I don't fault them, probate is, 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 is the equivalent of a four-letter word you don't want to say on Facebook Live. <laughs> I mean, some, some clients talk about probate that, oh, it's the worst. It's awful. I never want to do it. And it can be. And I just, maybe my first inclination is, Probate in Alabama for most families is not as bad as people think. And we can talk about what that process is. And actually, it can be a really good stabilizing force in winding down a family's affairs. Mm. I will say there are some states that probate is cumbersome and it's expensive because of fees and taxes and how it functions. Uh, Florida, California, those are notorious bad probate states. And in those days, people go out of their way to avoid probate. We can talk about that. They might create something called a living trust, and they might give everything they own to this trust, which you can do in Alabama. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a tool, and we can use it. But they do it for the sake of avoiding probate. And in, in, Al- in Florida and California, everybody has those trusts, or almost everybody. Those are common because probate is worth avoiding in those states. Just because you money? Because of the taxes, money, fees, and just the process is a little more cumbersome. cumbersome. In Alabama, it's not cumbersome. <laughs> uh, we can talk about why it could be cumbersome at times. And those are things I'm not necessarily saying you don't. There are times you do want to avoid probate. But in most cases, it's not as bad as people think. And there's actually a book. You can Google it. I used to have in a presentation a slide of it. It was called Avoid Probate. And it had an exclamation point. And... It was back in the 70s and 80s, and somebody sold this book nationwide, and it kind of it made probate out to be the worst possible thing that could ever happen to your family. And it's not that it wasn't true; it was maybe just some of the, some certain things were emphasized in it that were in some of those bad probate states. Mm. It didn't really apply to everything. And I have seen, and you, there are ways to avoid probate, but what's interesting is those ways are usually pretty costly. And the people that have avoid probate books are usually selling costly trusts to avoid probate. I just say it's worth having knowledge and looking at it. Not that that's wrong. It could be wonderful. But I have seen people spend more money to avoid probate than they would have spent in probate. And I'm talking like twice as much, maybe three times as much. And they did it to save money from probate. But they didn't. It was more costly and cumbersome. And if they didn't do it right, or keep their trust funded, they might have still had to probate anyway. You know, because again, remember, probate is what you have in your name at the time of death. And if you don't, if you're not diligent about keeping everything out of your name, then, you know, there's a problem. Um, you know, you, you still have to probate. So yeah, it's just an interesting, and it's worth just learning more about it. That's what I would encourage people to do. And, you know, 
ask questions about it, and like we're doing today, I think this is awesome. You know, what what actually is this scary thing called probate that I've heard so much about? Yeah, and I feel like, like you said, it's a negative word. It's a bad word, uh, and has negative connotation. But negative feeling behind it. It does, and it does, but it does give you some certainty. So maybe let's talk about it. I mean, in most cases, again, it depends on every family situation. But let's just take the typical family. You know, let's take my parents. If say my parents are both gone, they have a will. I did it, um, so I know it. Um, there's three children in my family. If we have to, and we will, when the second person dies, of mom and dad unless I do anything to avoid probate, which I haven't yet, by the way, because I don't think it's necessary. I haven't recommended that to them. We would file, let's say it's my mom that dies second. We would file my mom's will for probate. And they live in Shelby County, so we'd take it to the Shelby County Probate Court. Um, we would file the original will. We'd file a petition by the executor. That's me. I named in the will. And then my two sisters would have to sign a waiver of notice saying they know about it. If we sign those papers and file it with the court, the court will give us letters testamentary without a hearing. It's automatic. I personally never need to go to court. I could just send it through a courier or by mail. And the estate is now open. And so there's no court proceeding. There's no delay. It's very quick and efficient. Now, again, caveat, there's three adult children who all agree and who yeah. are willing to cooperate. Most families are like that. Um, you know, if, if I had a sister that maybe my parents were disinheriting or they weren't leaving her as much, maybe I would encourage the survivor of my parents to try to avoid probate because in order to make probate as easy as possible, we need the cooperation of the beneficiaries. We don't have to have it. It makes it easier. You think that's why sometimes we hear these outrageous stories of people not liking probate is because the family just wasn't uh, all going the same direction? I think so. I think that contributes to it. I think there's a lot of fear that you pay more in probate. You really don't. I mean, it costs you the same to administer an estate outside of probate and inside of probate, in my opinion. It's about same. Yeah. Um, I think you see family squabbles um, is exactly right um, and, and disagreeable. I think you also might see executors that maybe don't do their job like they should and they kind of take their time. They go slow, maybe it takes years for them to do an estate. It shouldn't take that long. <laughs> um, unless something's going on, it really shouldn't take that long. So in a state in Alabama has to be open for six months. That's the minimum. And that's to allow creditors of the estate to file a claim. And here's one of the benefits of probate. There's ways to address creditors outside of probate, but one of the benefits of probate is you get closure from debts. So the rule is if you had debts, if I had, if my mother had debts when she died, let's say she had a $5,000 hospital bill, let's say she had $2,000 of credit card bills, I would not pay those automatically. I would send them a note to those creditors and say, my mother has an estate. If you want to be paid, you have to file a claim with the court in Shelby County. If they do not file a claim within six months, I never have to pay them. Legally, I really shouldn't pay them. They're out. Yeah. So they have taken affirmative action. And if they do file a claim, then it's my job as an executor to analyze the claim and determine if it's appropriate and maybe get the court's help to determine if it's appropriate. Uh, but the beauty of probate is if I hear from somebody two years later to say, oh, we just did the accounting at the hospital. And this happens a lot, unfortunately. 
We found out your mom owed us an additional $3,000. Here's the bill. I tell them, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. Probate's closed, six months expired. You had a chance to file a claim and you didn't. And they have zero legal recourse against the estate or any of the beneficiaries. So Now, if you wouldn't have gone through pro probate, does that hospital, could they say you owe us the money? I think they have a better chance yeah. um, because it, it is harder. And, and there's a different reason they might have trouble getting it because if you avoided, well, if you avoided probate through the trust, they still could come after you because the trust has a process for notifying creditors. You still have to notify the creditors, but it's a three-month creditor with. So you do get some benefit with a trust. It's three months as opposed to six. However, there's no formal court process where they have to file it with a court. They're supposed to present it to the trustee. Gotcha. And I, you know, and so, and if you don't have any of that, I think they have more of an opportunity to go after those funds. However, a lot of times they don't, quite honestly, because those funds are already gone. Or if they pass jointly, they're gone. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it's one of the advantages if you're going to probate, you get closure uh, because you have a process because if they don't file it in the court, they're done. They're, they're, and, and you can tell whether you file something in a court. It's, it's, it's file stamped by that court. And if it's not there in time, and I've seen people file it late. They have six months. I've seen claims come in at seven months, eight months, one year. And is sorry, we can't pay you. That brings up a really positive point there that, you know, if you are, if your mom or, or dad passes away and they have outstanding creditors um, and maybe you feel like you're being bombarded, um, if you go yeah. through probate, uh, you kind of have a friend on your side, which is the courts. Uh, you do. And you, you have to file, you know, and you have to, what I find in practice, because I've, you know, and you know that with some of the other work you do. I mean, we have a lot of elderly clients. You, you, you work with a lot of caregivers who they might have credit card debt, not because they're consumer spenders or paying for junk. They're, they're maybe buying the medicines they need and they can't afford them. Or they're paying for medical services with credit cards. And then the family might get bombarded. There's a process is what I tell folks. There's a process. And what I find that most creditors don't even bother to do the process. And then you don't have to pay and then the ones that do, you can address it as it comes in. So it gives you some, it gives you a process, a very formal process. And it actually gives you a court to go to if you ever have a dispute. That can be nice at times. If you have a disagreement about what to do next, you can ask the court what to do because you're under jurisdiction of the court. Now, I will add again, when you have a probate, let's go back to my example of you know the Carney family. If we're all in agreement and we just get letters we do the creditor letters and then we wait for six months and then we divide the estate equally and then everybody signs a receipt that they got their share. We file the receipt with the court and then the probate is over. So we go through the entire probate process. No one, not even a lawyer, ever had to step foot in court and probate's complete and it's finished and it did its job. And so that, you know, that is such, that is, the, that is a great process. Now, if Let's, you can some you know near to this audience if one of and maybe another reason to avoid probate let's say one of my sisters had a disability and did not have legal capacity in that case she couldn't sign off on the will she couldn't sign a receipt to say she got what she needed she would have to have a court hearing where the court's making sure she's being taken care of even though i'm taking care of her they're making sure she's being cared for and they would appoint a guardian ad litem for her 
so it's a little extra steps and some hearings at that time. So certain times in probate, if we have somebody who can't speak for themselves because they're a minor or they're incompetent, then we may have to file. Then we may have to do a little more work on the probate end. And that's worth considering yeah. when you're doing estate planning. What if um, in that example, uh, a sister uh, was incompetent, but uh, one of her other siblings was a legal guardian? It's a, a same process. She would still have to have good. Somebody like that's a, a good thing. It's a good thing at the court. Just to just to double check, you know, there's certain things that they, they just want to make sure that that. Pro, I mean, the legal guardian would of course sign off on notice or different things for, her, but the court's still going to require. Uh, let us just look at this. Yeah. And again, I and I'm talking about if you go to court and you have a hearing of that type, and I've been part of many. It maybe takes five minutes. It's very quick. Again, unless there's some big issue, it's more of that formality just to make sure everything's going by the book. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a great thing to protect uh, those individuals, whether they're minors or they can't speak for themselves. It can be, and it's not a it's not a large price to pay um, to get that protection. So again, that's that's the um, you know that's the process because you know when you do a probate avoidance. No court's looking at you. Nothing's filed in a court unless something's done. And again, I'm not saying that they're good in the right scenario. And I'll use another example where it was great. Um, but if people want to abuse an estate, they usually try to avoid probate. That's a trend I'm seeing where family members will come in. I've seen it where grandchildren, I, I, you know, kind of, Grandchildren are wonderful. I'm a grandchild. I've got, you know, I had, I had great grandparents and uh, they're wonderful. We had a great relationship. Some grandchildren don't, maybe aren't as kind or good and maybe they take advantage of a good hearted grandparent. And I think about my grandmother. If I asked her for anything, she'd give it to me. Uh, if I asked her to deed her home to me, she might've done that. <laughs> she would give me anything I, mean, I wanted. I've seen a lot of grandchildren come in to elderly parents or elderly grandparents and they'll get them to sign over the home. They'll get them to put them as a beneficiary. They'll get them to put them on a bank account. And because that goes automatically outside of probate, it's under the radar and it's really hard to undo. It's yeah. harder than it would be if they had a will that they were trying to do this with. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, if you're gonna, you know, it's just something to be aware of again in caring for our elderly loved ones too, but there's, it might, it might not be a grandchild. It could be a caregiver. It could be a friend. It could be a new spouse that they just met and married after knowing them for a week. Um, yeah, they stopped, just got back from Vegas and they just signed the papers. Absolutely. And you know, in Alabama, it's, uh, and at least in our state, we changed the marital laws. It is now easier to get married. All you have to do is sign a marital contract that's notarized by somebody. So you I just draw up something and go to the bank and get it notarized. You can go to, on the web, a website and get the marital form, print it, go get it notarized at a bank. Um, our office manager has married two or three people because she's a notary. Yeah. <laughs> There's no, no ministers required anymore in Alabama. It's just a contractual. You, you, you sign something and you notarize it and you file it with the court. Pay $13 or whatever the fee is. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy. But I say all that to say that, you know, it's a, it's a probate conversation, but, you know, sometimes avoiding probate, you know, 
if you're going to do something wrong, you usually try to do it avoiding probate because you don't want that will to be under the microscope of a court or even under the jurisdiction of a court. You want to be under the radar. Yeah. Uh, to be under the radar. I mean, and do it easy, but it's just something to be aware of. I, I think a lot of people have a negative feeling when, about probate, but when we're talking about this, I think it's a very good thing uh, because it keeps everybody on track. Uh, it does. Everybody honest. You know, it does. Right. And, you know, there are times um, when I will, I want to let's talk about some of those like recommending avoiding probate. There are times and I can give you some examples. You know, in my own family, I had an elderly grandmother when she was passing away. We knew she was sick. She didn't have long but she lived a long, full life. And people that live a long, full life, a lot of times don't have a lot of money left. And that's a good thing. That's what you're supposed to do. Well, in that case, we avoided probate by putting her children on the account as beneficiaries. So even though she had a will, that will was never filed because at her death, whatever was left in her bank account, it wasn't much, went automatically to the kids. I think that's a good way to avoid probate. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in that case, that's, that's a, also a poor man's probate avoidance, but that's, what's a good thing to do. Um, uh, if you're older, you know, let's say you sell your home, you sold your home and you're living in a nice assisted living facility and all you have is an IRA and a bank account and you're okay with everything going equally to your three kids. I would probably recommend you name your three kids as beneficiary of the IRA and you name your three kids as beneficiary of the bank account. You just avoided probate. Mm -hmm. so, so there are right family situations and easy ways to do it. Um, oftentimes what I find, if I, if I talk about, and I have a, I, I can send this to you for posting. We have a little document we put up about a living trust. Like, do I need a living trust, which is a good probate avoidance tool? And I'm not saying they're, they're wrong. They're actually really wonderful tools. I try to dispel the myth, first of all, that just because you have a living trust, this extra document that's meant to replace a will, just because you have it doesn't mean you avoided probate. You have to have the trust and then you have to put everything you own into the trust. Mm -hmm. You actually have to deed your home to your trust. You have to title everything in your trust. You have to put your bank account in your trust. Again, not a bad thing and you still have control, but it's oftentimes a next step that most people overlook and we end up having to probate anyway. <laughs> so that's kind of one thing. I, so I always tell folks, if you're older in life and your assets aren't going to change, you become a better candidate for the living trust. If you're younger, your 40s and 50s, things are changing. You're probably going to move again. You got life is dynamic. It's harder to keep a trust funded when you're younger. Mm. If you're 75 or 80, you're probably living where you're going to live. You've, you don't have many, you know, you, you got a good handle on what you got and it's not increasing. And so that's a great time to do a probate avoidance trust. They also double as a tool to protect somebody's assets, much like a power of attorney. We might have an elderly person give somebody um, a trust becomes a way that somebody, meaning a trustee, could manage the money for that elderly person. Mm -hmm. And they can manage it easier when it's in a trust. Gotcha. It becomes a management tool. Uh, we also look at if you own out-of-state property, avoiding probate in some fashion, even if for that out-of-state property is important. And what I mean by that is if you land is different than other assets, dirt, land. If I own land in Georgia and I die in Alabama, 
I have to probate in Alabama and I have to do a secondary probate in Georgia. So it's worth trying to avoid that secondary probate. Yeah. And so maybe I do a living trust and I put the Georgia property into the trust and that's it. So I avoided probate for that Georgia property. So those are some of the little things we, as, as people who analyze this, we look for those things. You know, people will see on our questionnaire, we ask you if you own out-of-state property and everybody's always asking, well, why, what, what does that matter? Well, what we're getting at is this double probate problem. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out if that's an issue for you. <clears throat> Now you said land there like dirt, but is, can a house be on the property and you house, still have Yes, house. Um, and actually it was interesting. Any, anything that's related to an ownership in land, mineral rights applies. That's technically land. Um, technically timeshares apply. You have to, you know, that's a whole other story. Yeah. But anything that's related to land, you have to go to that state. And so we try to avoid that. And there's ways to do that. Um, the other reason we might want to avoid probate is if the probate process, if we know it would be cumbersome. And the example I use is, you know, if, we, if we're going to disinherit some people who are heirs, well, the law requires the heirs to get notice of the will before the will can be filed. Now, we can still file it without giving them notice. We just have to serve them with notice, which takes time. Um, if we know we're going to have uncooperative heirs, we might look to avoid probate to avoid that initial threshold headache because that would cause some delay. Um, the other example is, and I learned this the hard way, well, and it, you know, the, the client came to me and what she wanted to do a will. This was years ago, very simple lady, had no children, had no spouse. She wanted to do a will and leave it to some family members. And I thought, oh, that's great, simple will, it's all we need to do. Well, when you file a will for probate, you have to send notice to her legal next of kin whoever that is. She was older. She had a lot of siblings. A lot of them had died. Their kids become the legal next to kin. And it turned out in order to get that will probated, we had to notice 25 different people. You got to be kidding me. All over the world and all over, even in other countries <laughs> in order to get that will probated. And, um, you know, and, and again, that she probably wouldn't have wanted to avoid probate because she only wanted to pay for a simple will. And that's all she wanted to do. And that's all she wanted. But I probably would have thought of other creative ways to avoid probate had I realized her next of kin class is that much because it just took a while and it took a lot of time and effort to get all those people served with notice. And it was just a technicality of the law. So I usually ask folks, you know, who would be your next of kin? You know, try to get to know who the family is and, you know, would they be agreeable? And if there's anybody that has like 25 or 30 folks in that and it's set by the law who it is. I might say, well, let, maybe it is worth it to avoid probate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there, I think that's the message I take is, or, you know, how I practice. And again, other people can differ and, and it's not necessarily wrong, but my philosophy is that probate avoidance is a great tool to be used when it's necessary. Yeah. When it's required. But most people, particularly, you know, just your standard couple, who's doing a will to protect the kids or maybe older folks doing a will just to have something simple in place. You usually can do a will. Yeah. Get with that. Now, when we go through these uh, four different examples, like the airship, the summary distribution, yeah. loving trust and the probate, what percentage of clients at Carney die would you say fall into those? I think the majority, yeah, it's hard to say because a lot of times folks, majority probably still end up having to probate. I mean, it, it just depends. I mean, 
you know, there's probably uh, the people that come to us maybe with issues, because a lot of those issues are so easy. We might just point somebody in the right direction. They don't need much legal help. Mm-hmm. Or here's an affidavit. See what you can do with it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. If I had to guess, you know, maybe 20, 30% of people could get away with some kind of small estate proceeding. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little more, because again, that usually works well with couples. Yeah. The rest would be some type of probate proceeding. Um, you know, but if you, um, you know, if you're not blessed enough, I mean, it's hard either way. If you know somebody's dying, and one of the things when this happens, whether it's a family friend, somebody might call me and say, you know, my, my dad's just happened years ago. So I knew someone's father was passing. Just being a probate lawyer, one of my pieces of advice would be make sure everything has your mother's name on it. Mm-hmm. You know, just no, do that. Because if you, because you can do it easier now than you could do it at his, if he's gone. Like, let's do it now while he's living, because unfortunately he's, he's got a terminal condition. We know he's not going to be with us in six months. Yep. So let's let's do that. Let's do these things. And so even in that case, they were able to make a few little tweaks, just made it easier. Mm-hmm. And I might do the same if someone's single. Is are there are there ways that we can do it again in a smart way that honors their wishes? Um, that we can do it that way. I feel like um, it's good just to check in uh, with your attorney periodically, every few years, even at my age. Uh, you know, I'm 34. So maybe it's every three to five years, just because you're bringing up stuff that I've never thought about. And, and I normally wouldn't think about. And, you know, and then you're suggesting, well, you could think about this over the next few years and just make sure you have yeah. these types of things. So it's really worth it. I feel like a lot of people don't utilize the service of their attorneys uh, more readily. It, 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 life changes. Yeah. And, and it, you know, the industry standard with people in my world say is every five to seven years is a good time for a formal check-in. That's usually the industry standard. Earlier is fine. Later is fine. If you have a life-changing event, that's also a time to check in. Death, marriage, move, something like that, a big event in your life. Um, those are good times to check in. But again, it's really, a lot of times the planning we do is with the end in mind. Again, it's any kind of good, it's a Stephen Covey thing, I think, begin with the end in mind. I mean, you hate to think about the end, but you know, we do planning thinking about the end. How is this going to play out on the back end mm-hmm. from a practical, from a tax standpoint? And by doing probate work, you just become a better planner because you see what happens. Um, I talk about that with administrators when somebody does probate. I, I mentioned it earlier, you know, Another downside of probate is if you have an executor or an administrator that's just not doing what they're supposed to be doing, or maybe maybe they're dragging their feet because they're emotional. That happens a lot. I mean, you we're, we always have to remember we're dealing with probate because we just lost somebody, and usually it's somebody very close to us, and it's somebody that you know we really care about. And so, in thinking about beginning with the end in mind, when you're selecting an executor also called a personal representative, but I still use the old term sometimes. Uh, That's the person in charge of your estate. So sometimes when you're making that choice, it's worth thinking who can handle it under that level of pressure and emotional pain. Because if an executor really from day one needs to jump into their job and start protecting and preserving assets and start doing what they need to do. Um, I have seen executors over the years and I can't blame them. I might be the same. I might be the worst executor in the world, even though I'm a professional. If something happened to my wife, I don't even want to think about it. I might have to let someone else do it because um, I, I like. I think I'll be a wreck. Yeah. Um, and that's that's normal. I think that's okay. And I've dealt with a lot of spouses 
who just said they couldn't deal with it. Mm. And I had to gently tell them, you know, we, we do, there are some things we need to do that'll be helpful to do. And if you truly can't deal with it, maybe you step aside and let somebody else do it. That's the importance of having a lineup. Yep. Kind of like having a president and vice president and speaker of the house. You know, you have a line of succession. And they don't all travel on the same plane at the same time. There you go. You got you to gotta have a backup. And, and so you think about that. So I tell executors when they open an estate and they get their letters, a best practice, if you're ever doing it, start thinking about the end from day one. Because mm-hmm. what I find is folks will get these things called letters. And then what they do is they, they wait for six months before they do anything. Sometimes their attorneys are guilty of that too. They don't do anything for six months. And then when it's time that they can legally close it, they, they say, well, what do we need to now do to close? And my advice would, is always start thinking about working towards closing from day one so that once you hit the six month point, closed. Yep. You can close it because you're ready. So if you have to sell a house, maybe you've made preparations, maybe you've even sold it during that six month period. That's okay. You can do that. Um, you can do that light work. Um, a lot of times from a lawyer, you ask about the probate process. Our job is probably really easy. That's why a lot of, you know, it is opening the estate. As I talked about, it's really easy to get letters testamentary in most cases. Even in difficult cases, we can still get it eventually. And then basically, we give those letters to the executor, and we tell them to do what they need to do. Gather the assets, protect and preserve, and they do all the hard legwork. Yeah. You know, going to different banks. <laughs> running around town, calling people. It's, it's a lot of work to be an executor. Um, now, I am a rep payee of a family member of mine. And when I became rep payee, I got a pamphlet um, from Social Security that really walked me through it. And I've referenced it before. Is there a pamphlet like that for an executor? There are some good resources out there. We've shared some before. I'll have to send that to you. There's an administrator's handbook that a lot of the courts put out about things you need to know as an executor. And really, in most exec- most courts are going to require this. Rare occasion, they, they don't. Most courts are going to require you to have an attorney. And, and the good thing about that is you have somebody to guide you through that process and give you direction. Mm-hmm. And, and so getting some basic information is important, but a lot of times there's not too much because sometimes running with basic information for an estate can cause problems because mm. there's always nuances. There's always, there's always one little a, paragraph in there. that'll. Or there's always something that just doesn't apply to you because it's hard to speak. It's kind of like that old avoid probate book. You're trying to speak generally to an audience and it's almost too general because you don't, you can't drill down to the specifics. Mm. Um, and so there are good resources and there's a, a lot of the probate courts have an administrator's handbook to tell you what you need to do. Um, we give people a checklist. It's also something I can send you things to do when a person dies, two page checklist, just things to think about. Yeah. Um, we also give people an estate roadmap letter. Most attorneys do this. We call it a roadmap letter because we want to tell you what the next six months look like, what you need to be doing and how you need to do it. I think that's really important because, you know, as you said, it can be an emotional time and you kind of need to fall back on a structure. You do. It's, and I, I kind of always say it's next steps. And so kind of like in a probate process, step one is get letters. All, all attempts are on letters because we can't do anything without letters. That starts the six months. 
So we get letters. Okay, now that we have letters, what's next? And then we just step by step. That's why I kind of said it's a process. You know, it's a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just step by step. And if you kind of like with anything like this, if you look at it all at once, it's overwhelming. It would make you want to put the book down and be like, I you can't do, do No, it is. It's as hard as like, no way. This is too much. It's too much work here. But it's step by, when you break it down into steps and, and phases. And so we tell our executors, when you're going through the process, keep careful records. You know, you're accountable to the beneficiaries. You're liable to the beneficiaries if you do anything wrong. If you misspend money, if you waste money, you're liable. So keep careful records, much like a rep payee. You're a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. It's not your money belongs to the beneficiaries. You keep careful records of everything that comes in, everything that goes out. You gather all the estate assets. And then, whereas the attorneys kind of did a lot on the front end, we come back in on the back end and help the executor settle the estate and close the estate. And a lot of times, if we have adult beneficiaries, that might simply be sending the beneficiaries a summary of estate activity, maybe some supporting statements, showing them that you did your job and asking them to sign a consent. Mm. And what I always tell folks who are executors is it's always a best practice to be transparent, to talk to your beneficiaries, to keep them posted, because at the end of the day, we're going to ask them to sign a consent and we want them to feel comfortable signing. If the first time they ever hear from you is when you give them a consent and they have no idea what money is in the estate, they're not going to sign your consent. (laughs) And they should not sign your consent. Um, and so just that, that just understanding that this is our end goal, kind of what are, what's our end goal is to get everybody who can to sign off mm-hmm. at the end of the day to approve it. If you do that, you're fine. Yeah. And, and be, having open communication will help that out a lot. I think that's kind of a good general rule always, <laughs> you know, just open communication, being upfront. And I always tell an executor, you're a fiduciary, you have nothing to hide. You know, if somebody asks you for statements, you should give them statements. Yeah. If somebody asks you for any documentation, you should give them documentation because you're doing a doing a job. You know, again, very, you know, you're a you're a steward of someone else's funds. Much like a rep payee, you need to be if they have social security asks you how did you spend that money and they do that, you need to be able to tell them. You need to be able to show them it was for the benefit of this disabled person. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with an executor. You, if you're asked, how did you spend that money? You need to be able to tell somebody. Mm-hmm. Got to keep not, books. You can be a uh, keep good books um, and records and just, you cannot be more, you cannot be detailed enough. That's what I tell executors. Don't, if you got somebody who loves to keep records and use different color binders and tabs. And, and if you got that person in your life, they're, they could be a good executor candidate. <laughs> yeah. <know>. Organized. <laughs> Um, as we kind of wrap up today yeah. on probate, is there anything that we, we haven't talked about yet about probate that you think, um, you know, family would really benefit from hearing? I, I, I really think we did a good job of covering it. I mean, one of the, the main things I, I just reiterate, just kind of going back to families, is just the understanding of the non-probate property is so important. Uh, checking those beneficiary designations and making sure they match the estate plan so important to do and 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 is off is probably one of the most overlooked things in people's estate plan because it's off your radar mm-hmm. i mean i it is just it's just not it's not handy like the will 
Um, and, and so I also think it's very important, even if you think you're not going to probate, even if you get a simple will, um, everybody should have a will. Can't emphasize that enough. Even if you have nothing, if you have the ability to do a will, you should have a will because if you die and you don't have a will and you have assets in your name, and again, remember some of those assets may come because maybe you died in an accident that wasn't your fault. Mm-hmm. That brings assets too. So if you don't have a will, you have to do the intestate probate and that always costs money and it's always cumbersome. It's never a good thing. I mean, it's always, if you have a will, um, it's always better. So I think those are kind of the two things that if most folks do that, uh, you know, you'll be okay. And then lastly, you know, three things is the practical side of estate planning. We've been emphasizing that more. We have a family record book on our website, but you can find thousands of these if you Google it. Personal record book, family record book. What I have found is when you go through the probate process, having a will and good documentation is essential. Absolutely. Number two essential is having information. Because if you don't know where your loved one held their assets or what they even owned, probate becomes difficult. This may go into one, you know, and it's difficult whether you probate or not. Um, I talked to a client not long ago, her mother died. She had a will, it was excellent, but she did not know anything about her mom's finances. She completely blank, no idea. Mom was very private and that's mom's right. It's all of our rights. And I still say you should be private, but I do think you should write it somewhere and keep it organized or keep statements. Mm-hmm. Because she had, she had to call, she had to start calling banks in the town where her mother lived, asking if she had an account there. She wasn't sure which bank she used. <laughs> Didn't even know there. Now, could have dug, or, you know, I tell people, wait by the mailbox, try to find an old tax return, dig through the house. A lot of times people aren't organized or they have stuff everywhere and it's confusing. And then, and then also a big problem comes up. My grandparents had these. My parents have some of these, I'm sure. These old life insurance policies that people bought for you back in the 50s, 60s, when people used to sell door to door. Everybody, some people have these little policies and you might find those and you don't know if they're still effective. So you have to start doing some detective work and figuring that out. And it, that's a part of the process. However, if we, the best practice is if we give our family a general list, we make it available to them. Of, here's everything I have. Here's where it is. Here's the account numbers. Here's who you can call. This is my insurance agent. You have given that executor a wonderful gift. Yeah. Save them probably a week, 40 hours. It, you, oh, at least. It, and I tell people all the time, it's like, it's so common. I say it all the time. I feel like Oh, now you get to be a financial detective. <laughs> you, know, you get to be a sleuth and you get to search. And, and another tip is um, we, uh, for our estates, we typically look at Alabama's unclaimed property. And I encourage people to look at unclaimed property even after the fact. Yeah. The state of Alabama, and make sure you go to the state treasury website. There's some other knockoff sites that are trying to get your information or sell you something that's free. The state of Alabama Department of Treasury has an unclaimed property site and you can find your, you can look there. And oftentimes I have more times than you would think we have found assets that belong to a decedent and the executor has a job to go get those assets. It might not be a lot. It might be $100, might be $2,000, but it might be there. And and Alex, I tell you the funny story, maybe everybody should check 
you won't even if you find yourself that's great post it on facebook so we know it's a success but uh i was showing somebody how to do it and i google i put my name in just for fun and my name popped up that i had unclaimed property really <laughs> i had no idea and it was my address they, they they verify you by your address and i had no i like what in the world could that be well what it was was it was a charter internet amount for like $60. It was an internet bill. I had moved and the check didn't get forwarded. And so Char it never got cash when Charter sent a refund. It's a Charter sent it to the state of Alabama as unclaimed property. Yeah. And if I didn't claim it after so many years, it would eventually revert to the state. And I just thought it was the greatest thing. I was like, I had no idea <laughs> that I would find want my... to go search my name right now. You need to search your name. You need to search your name. But uh, we, but we do that. And that's just an example of the, the wide net we tell an executor cast when you're looking for assets. And that it is so much easier to fish using that analogy if you're given a starting point. Yeah. Of here's where everything is. Those estate administrations are so easy. And, you know, it's kind of how I was thinking the other day, talking to clients, how we want to be remembered, right? I mean, it, what I encourage people is she was bragging on her father who had everything organized. He had every document in place. He had every piece of information. It was so easy. It was so wonderful. He did everything. He took care of us. Mm-hmm. Like, what a beautiful like way to be remembered by. Yeah. As opposed to, that uh, was kind of a mess and it took us three years and we didn't know where everything was. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. That happens, but still, uh, that kind of gave me some good conviction for myself again. That's how I want to do it. I want to make it easier. I'm willing to do a little bit of the legwork now so that they don't have to do a lot of the legwork later. I'm very grateful that my grandfather went through that process before he passed away. It made it extremely, uh, a lot easier to help transfer those uh, his assets into my grandmother's name. It, it's so much easier and it's, you know, and you hear it every once in a while, people might say, well, you know, I'm not going to be here. I don't care what happens. And I try to tell people, well, uh, please do because <laughs> it, it, it does matter. Like what you do today, it does matter. And, and if it's thoughtful and it's well-structured and it's all laid out, you've made it easier. You've reduced the, you've reduced the opportunity for dispute. You know, you've lessened that likelihood Yep. And you made that process pretty quick and easy. Yeah. I want to comment before we end here about the unclaimed. Um, we had an opportunity, this was like a year and a half ago, to do a broadcast with Young Boozer, who was a secretary. Oh, uh, yeah. Treasurer. And he, we were talking about unclaimed, and the amount uh, of actual money or you know assets in there is astronomical that the state will just accept after a number of years. Stunning. And, and it makes sense. And it's all these little, um, I've had clients before that they had a, you know, state of Alabama retirement check that didn't get cashed or a lot, it's a lot of health insurance premium refunds. If there's a life insurance policy that nobody knew about, it could end up in unclaimed property. Mm-hmm. And so I've had, I've had folks that have gotten that, you know, I've known personally that have gotten thousands of dollars from different assets. So, you know, when you add it all up, it is unbelievable. It was like 50 million. It might've been, it was crazy. That sounds about right. It says it on the website. And I will tell people, if you look at that, there are companies that will try to make you think that you have to pay them a percentage to get it. You don't. I'm going to post the actual link in our chat. Uh, Perfect. There are actually companies that fish on unclaimed property and will send people letters that they have unclaimed property. And take a percentage or something? Take a percentage. And 
you don't have to do that. It's so easy. Cause I, again, you're talking to a guy who did it himself. You print the claim form. All you have to do is send them proof that you lived at the address they have on file. Mm. And it's like a bill or a deed or something. If you do that, the state of Alabama cuts you a check for whatever that amount is. Yeah. And what's kind of fun, Alex, is that they won't tell you the amount. They tell you if it's over $100 or under $100. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's kind of like there's a little bit of lottery game there. You know, it's got like a little excitement. You never know until it comes in. <laughs> if you've ever bought a lottery ticket, uh, you need to click on this link that I'm going to put in. And just see like, oh, boy, I hope I, uh, I hope I see my name or... or <laughs> Search for your friends. I mean, I found some one of my family members wanted. It was all from when he was in college and he changed apartments. And so it was AT&T, Bell Cell, the gas company, the power company. Because when you change, you get a credit for the time you didn't use. And if you're a college kid and you move, you're not really good at forwarding things. Yeah. And so in order to release liability, these companies pay it over to the state. And then they're off the hook. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's just an interesting concept, but we, again, we see that every so often um, in these estate administrations and it's worth, it's worth checking. I've lived in three states. So I've got three states to go through. You got, you got three states to check. You absolutely <laughs> do. So. I feel lucky today. There you go. Let me know how it goes. So. Um, well, I'd like to uh, thank everybody for being uh, here with us today and Mr. Carney for, you know, easing our mind a little bit about what probate is and, and maybe it's not so scary. Um, so I would recommend, um, you know, get in touch with your attorneys, uh, if you are still and get in touch with uh, Carney Guy Associates, uh, if you have any additional questions and, um, we'll be back live with, uh, Carney Guy next month. And we have yet to pick a topic for that, but if you guys have any questions, you can always email me or put it in chat about future topics that you'd like to see. Um, and at this Great. point, Mr. Carney, we're going to go ahead, go ahead and end, and we'll just give a wave to uh, everybody on the internet. Thank you, Alex. See y'all. Bye. Right. See ya.